0: But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the sword and bends their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own hearts and their own bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God, indeed. You may be seated. So, like I mentioned, we are going to spend two Sundays uh, in this really, really rich psalm. And I'll explain more about why here in just, in just a few moments. But mostly because it's 40 verses packed full of so much wonderful wisdom for us. It's, 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 a, it's a psalm that is a, a psalm of confidence. It's also a psalm that's got like a wisdom psalm. And so it's got a lot of Proverbs-like material in it that we can glean so much wonderful hope from. Um, And I'm excited to kind of dig into it with you over two Sundays. But here's the thing. Um, Next Sunday, we will not be returning to it. We'll return to it on the 25th. Uh, because our brother, Pastor uh, Justin, is going to be preaching from Psalm 51 next week, so you've got to be praying for him. Uh, pray for him as he delivers. He always will serves us well and encourages us well, but, I'm, but, um, but we're going to come return to this on the 25th, and we're going to try to cover half of this right now, and then we'll cover the, recover the other half when I return from some vacation time here in a couple of weeks. And uh, so I'm looking forward to this. This, this morning, I, am, um, been, I have been deeply encouraged. In fact, we were going to go a different route, psalm-wise. And then in study, Jim helps me do some study um, and get prepared. It just seemed like, as I kept reading beyond Psalm 36, which is what we we're supposed to preach from, um, I got into Psalm 37, I was like, oh no, there's so much here that I want to be encouraged by, mutually with you, as we unpack it together. And so it became very clear to both of us that this is where we need to go, but because it's so much there, we said, uh, we can't cover this in one week, so we're going to cover it in two Sundays. So bear with us as even now the Lord works and and leads and guides as we uh, think about what the Psalter holds out for God's people. Now, if you grew up in church, um, you no doubt have heard a Sunday school lesson at some point, whether in children's Sunday school or perhaps in uh, just an adult Sunday school somewhere, about the King of Israel, David, and his rise to his power there, and everything that went into that, as he is um, as he's being chosen by Samuel to be anointed after God um, has turned his uh, turned away from King Saul, who had turned his own heart away from his God because he was leaning too much on his own wisdom and, and strength. By the way, if you don't want no to context of to this and want to read on your own, First Samuel is a place you want to go for this. Okay, just really read the entire book. It, it, it's it's a wonderful. You see God's powerful working God in Israel during that, that time. But as Saul had turned his heart away from God in this kind of arrogant effort to, um, to lead Israel apart from, I'm sorry, within his own wisdom and strength, the result was the stress and the anxiety of leading Israel without God's power and help. Um, again, the Lord had rejected him as king in 1 Samuel 15, uh, he continued to lead him into a deeper and and deeper paranoia and a a sense of, I need to preserve myself, and he was being drifted further and further away from his God. And one of the last acts of Samuel, that first, you might say, uh, that first uh, prophet and priest, prophet over over Israel, um, he turns from Saul and he goes to find David and his family line and uh and finds out that god wants to use a man of insignificance a man who's small in stature a man who's got humility about him and of course that's who god raises up in david of course david has his own sins in this whole process but he raises up david who would be king though it would still be some time before he would become king um but but even more than that what's what's astounding about the whole story of david is is that even though god had was doing something powerful in his life um significant in his life He was a man willing to be humble, willing to submit even to Saul, who God had removed his hand from and dutifully served the king in his court as a chief musician and all kinds of other things. And we just see him, even though Saul was threatened by David and paranoid about David, sought to end David's life, Like that didn't deter him. He still felt the responsibility to honor the Lord by serving the court well. Serving the court of the King Saul well, even until, until God himself would find the time when he would, even then, probably wasn't even presuming about being king during most of his life. And even while he was on the run from Saul, when Saul finally just lost it, and he just said, I'm going to end David's life, that would became the ambition of his final days as king. Uh, he had an opportunity to re- seek revenge against king saul he was he could have he could have crept up from behind and he could have ended king saul's life and he could have ended all this terror he's been under for so many years but he doesn't he spares king saul's life and shows him that he was never he was never the threat to king saul saul was a threat to himself now i i enter into this this morning with that story because psalm 37 likely there's two different possible contexts that psalm 37 is written from but this is likely one of one of them and it's a psalm written to remind God's people as we've already read this morning not to fret not to fret when wicked the wicked seem to be prospering and when the wicked seem to be victorious but rather trust and delight in God who will gain the victory for his people in his own good time and so I'm taking that idea this morning, and here's the thing I want to talk to us as a church about, and, the, and hopefully anyone who's a church in these days. The church needs, needs not to fret in the face of apparent influence and the rule of sin and rebellion in our world. I don't have to tell you where that's alive and well right now, do I? But we trust and delight in Christ who, will gain, who has and will gain the victory for us. Now let's get into Psalm 37 for a moment. If you kind of get understanding, understand what it is, the psalm, as we know written by david and we know Saul. david was a notable musician very gifted and talented in this regard and that's one of the reasons why he became so favorable in saul's kingdom in saul's court there he he would be able to sing and he would soothe saul's own anxious heart and um but we also noted in our first week of our study that about half of the psalms are written or attributed to david and that one of the powerful things about this as we dig into the Psalms is how practical they are while also leading us into deep theological reflection about who God is. They, they, they're powerful and they're continually relevant because they bring real-life experiences of God's people into these hymns. That's what the psalmist does today. That's what David does today. He, he brings a real-life heart issues like fretting, being anxious about life, that you and I will face on a on a regular basis and he brings them into these hymns of worship and he lays them before what the bible reveals about god and what god is doing and who god's people are and what god will ultimately accomplish and so again like i said this this context of psalm 37 likely comes from david's own reflections as an old man because we know that he was wrote this in old man verse 25 tells us that when we get to that here in a couple weeks but he's either reflecting on this time Or he could possibly be reflecting on one that was a little later in his kingdom when his son Absalom would would seek his own throne and he had to go on a run again. It could be either one of those two major issues. It could be something else all entirely different. But here's the main thing. It doesn't really matter which one of the contexts that best reflects Psalm 37. What we know is David as an old man is looking back over the course of his life and he's saying, why did I fret so much? Why did I get anxious so much? Why did I let the, the things of this world rule me so much? And then he, he crafts this psalm. He crafts this hymn for us. And he, and he speaks right in to the pensive and fearful and doubtful dispositions of our of the hearts of God's people who face routine dangers who face routine snares in the world and he brings us face to face with them he doesn't pretend that they're not there he doesn't wax over our own experiences of, of being fretful about the way life is he actually goes right into them and so the, the, there's two main ideas this morning that I want to I want to pull from this the first one will be rather short and then the second one we'll will dive more into our, our text but is number one is We need to expose our fearful and pensive hearts. We need to be honest about our fearful and pensive hearts. The idea here of being fretful here in in verses 1 and 2 is, it could literally mean in our day, uh, don't get heated. Don't get heated about things. Don't Don't get worked up, literally. Don't get worked up. Amanda likes to say it this way to me. She's like, be cool, yo. That's one of her things she says to me every once in a while. Be cool, yo. Or we'll say it to each other when we're kind of like chilling, when we need to kind of get down on it right there. She's, she doesn't mind stepping in sometimes, even though I may not like it. Okay? She doesn't mind stepping into the messiness of my heart and just saying, look, don't, don't get heated up. Don't get... Why, why are you letting Because she sees that often in me. Anyone who knows me, I, I tend to get very much what David is speaking to here. Get, I get worked up about the inconsequential issues that go on in the world around me. And I, get, and, and I feel like, like we're just... I fear rule me because of whatever unknown things might I might be perceiving might be coming down the road, and the psalms just man they just they, they draw us into this, and David steps right into the messiness of our hearts, the right messiness of my own heart, and he says, I I see it, I understand it, I've been there, I know how this can turn you upside down. I don't know if you're like me, but I can I tend to sometimes think. 10 steps down the road and let that rule where i am right now am i alone in that i I bet i'm not i can look 10 steps down the road and i can let that like somehow another get me all wound up about some things that in the end of the day god always ends up providing for it always ends up sustained for so one worldly or like you know way of looking at it is so uh, here recently our, our one of our sons has qualified for a tournament that we're going to this next week and uh it wasn't part of our plan and i was i was stressing out about trying to get our team there because a lot of our team doesn't have finances to, to help get that there and so i'm trying to take responsibility for this and i'm stressing out about it and then all of the top then we have tryouts and our teams are all changing and shifting around and i'm one of the managers for the teams and it's just we went from you know. 36 kids to 117 kids for tryouts and and so i'm just letting all this and i've been carrying all the stress about this for the last two or three weeks life can get us so focused on the what is right what if we don't get this settled what if we don't get that settled what if what if this doesn't turn out the way it should be and what happens to this person and how will this person feel or or or, or how will i feel what what will be the consequences of this for me and my family Wh- whatever those things may be you fill in the blanks for yourself and so in our day and age, to put it more in, in the stark contrast of where we live, the kingdom of Christ and the common kingdom of man, we can so easily find ourselves fretting about the tension between the two, can't we? Letting, letting the, the way the kingdom of man continues to disintegrate and continues to uh, assault uh, the things of God constantly, and we, can, and we can find ourselves so enamored and so focused on those things that we, friends, can lose sight of Jesus. We can lose sight of the consequences. Um, those consequences can lead us away from following Jesus ourselves. We, we will be so focused on will we be able to stand up, will we have courage, will we be able to endure the onslaught of all the things that are coming and things that are shaping around us in, this, in the cultural rage that ultimately ends up, um, we end up focusing on um, rejecting the idols of our culture more than worshiping the God that we serve right and i think this a, there's a word here in this for us this morning that i think is very important for us to not get so caught up in focusing on the idols that our culture is bringing to bear on us and then in that process we lose sight of the of the tender loving uh, gracious present care of our lord savior jesus christ who's there with us right there now we can lose sight of him i mean this is a big deal the psalmist he says don't fret in verse one he says in verse 7, don't fret. He says in verse 8, don't fret. Like, it's a big deal because, look, clearly most people feel, and maybe, and maybe correctly, like the nice guys always finish last. And we look in the world, we go, we go, clearly, like the, good, the people who are seeking to do things righteously, they're going to come up last in this. And so what does that mean for us? And we all get that principle, don't we? We all get that to some degree. We, we feel the tension of being the, the nice guy who's going to come in last in the way the world's kind of going these days. And so he repeats it again, and he repeats it again. It's, it's where you and I live. It's, it's so common to all of us to get so enamored by the net, lightest news wire that we somehow never let that dominate our affections for Jesus and dominate our hopes in Christ as we go along. And look, friends, it's no secret the world is a circus. I mean, it's a circus. It's not, it's not funny to say that there's the, about the bearded lady at the circus anymore, is it? It's not. Like, it's a reality. And we think, well, that's just for that realm, but it's actually real for us. And we can let that dominate us. We can be so focused on those things, and yet at the same time have our own hearts be um, drained of a love and affection and the presence of god in our lives because we're so worried about responding to that instead of being the kingdom of christ here and reflecting what that looks like in the place that god has placed us right now and so there's two extremes right there's two extremes about how this fretfulness kind of hits us we either do the whole retreat right retreat from culture um Go live in silos. Or we can do the whole, now we've got to go to war culture. And friends, I'm going to be very clear, be honest with you, I think both of those lead us away from seeing Jesus. When they are the subtotal of what we think Christianity is. When we got to just preserve, or we always got to just fight. We end up, or we can possibly end up, taking our eyes off Christ. And so what does the psalmist call us to? And what we're going to see over today and then over the course of uh, on the 25th when we return to this. The psalmist is going to call us to two things. Look up at Christ and to look beyond the momentary affliction. Look up at Christ and maybe even say look beyond the wicked. I mean, we're going to see that very clearly today in these first 20 verses or so. Get your eyes off the ways of the wicked. Why do you give them so much attention, the psalmist calls us to? No, get your eyes onto God. Get get your eyes on who God says he is. Get your eyes on God, what God has revealed about himself. Get your eyes on those kind of things, and he will hold you up. He will be right there in the middle of it. It doesn't mean that we don't need to speak truth to those things. That's not what we're getting at at all. But the fact is, I feel like sometimes we're just so focused on trying to respond to where things are rather than to actually reflect who God is and His grace to us. Now, that's easier said than done, right? We, we get this. I think we all principally understand what we're, what we're trying to say here, but that's still easier said than done. So, where do we go? Where what, what do those who look to Christ and look beyond, like, what is it that's what is it about their character and nature that helps us do that? And so what we're going to look at for the next two weeks is two th- four things, four vital perspectives that those who look up to Christ and look beyond the wicked do to deter fretfulness in our life, all right? Um, and we're going to cover two of them today. But well, I'll go ahead and give you the four all for the next two weeks, the next two times we're here. Number one, we got to look at our inheritance, which we're going to cover out today, the meek will shall inherit the earth. We've got to look at the fateful future of the, uh, of the wicked. We're going to cover that today. And then we're going to look then, in two weeks, we're going to look at it and say the, that the wisdom of those who've gone before us. There are people who've been there, done that, like David. And he would call us to just remember that like, this is nothing new. The world's been in chaos since the garden. And we need to learn to take the long view, number four. So we're going to cover those last two Uh, on the 25th. But today we're going to look at two two things. One, reminding ourselves the perspective of our inheritance that is to come. And then look at the fateful future of the wicked. So what is this inheritance we're talking about? Well, verse 11 tells us very clearly what it is. The meek shall inherit the land, and they will delight themselves in abundant peace. And so everything leading from verse 3 up through verse 11 is really defining what it means to be meek. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to be meek. You are probably familiar with this because this is probably not the first place you've heard about the meek shall inherit the earth, yes? We know this. Jesus said this in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, specifically in chapters 4, 5, and 6 or so, or 7, so there, right there, all right? And most of the time, though, when we think about interpreting the Bible, we tend to work from front to back meaning we let the old the new testament help us understand what the old testament was saying so we we tend to go the the new testament passage expands on what the old testament passage said in a more fuller way that's the proper way typically the standard way of doing biblical interpretations we don't just the old testament doesn't stand on its own it stands in relationship to the more fuller revelation that god has given us in the new testament particularly in his son jesus christ And more often than not, the Old Testament serves as this kind of type and shadow of a bigger, more fuller revelation of God's redemptive picture that is being revealed, that was revealed to us in the New Testament and primarily through his son, Jesus. But sometimes the reverse happens. And this is one of those cases in the Bible where the reverse happens. Like in Psalm 37, the Old Testament actually expands the New Testament. Because... Uh, Jesus quotes in Matthew 5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth, but he leaves it unexplained. He leaves it and just lets it sit there, and we are now left thinking, what does this actually mean? What does it mean to be meek? And we go back to Psalm 37, and it itself explains what Jesus is saying. It helps us see what Jesus is saying about the meek shall inherit the earth. It helps us understand the meek lifestyle in the face of this apparent prosperity and flourishing of the wicked. Now, a couple of things we want to say before we get, jump into more verses three through ten is this: when we think about weakness, and since it's one of the mistakes a lot of people make when they think about being meek, is that they think weak. I don't know why, but they think weak because they think well, uh, weak means because you're not a person who who, who 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 maybe you're not the most gregarious person in the world, and you're out there doing all the different things in order to be the being whatever it may be. But that's not what weak is, meek is. Weak is not i'm sorry meekness is not weakness Boy, that's a tongue twister isn't it um the meek are those who for many people think they are the ones who retreat from the world and nothing could be further from the truth the meek are not those who get pushed around by the world no the meek are the resilient in the world in the face of difficulty they they still like david they still show up even their, on their deep persecution, they still show up and they show honor for God by showing honor for people around them. And they still are engaged in, 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 in our said day and age as Christians who continue to still be as best as they possibly can, proactive agents of good in the world. And they do it even though what we understand is good is not what's considered good by the world. We know this, right? We know what's good as it relates to um, human sexuality. We we understand what is good when it comes to marriage and relationships. We understand what is good about families when that has been so under assault over these last, uh, what, 20 or 25 years, particularly if not longer than that. Now, the meek are resilient in the face of difficulty. They're not weak. They're not weak. And so what we see here in verses 3 through 10 is five marks of meekness who someone who meek who is meek actually is and so let's just kind of look at it verse three trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness in other words the meek trust in the Lord and it defines what this looks like with these 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 ongoing descriptors they do good in spite of the fact that their goodness is rejected by the enemies of God, they still do good. They still seek to do good for their neighbor, and they still seek good to speak truth to their neighbor where they can, and they still seek to establish good norms for society to the best of their abilities. Wherever the Lord has has put them, They, they trust the Lord. They do good. They dwell in the land. They don't retreat from the land. They're still there. I mean, this is, again, remember what God said to through Jeremiah to the people of God who went into Babylonian captivity. Go there. Don't listen to your prophets who say don't go there and don't establish yourself. Those guys don't know what they're talking about. Go there, build houses, have families, and do good there. That's the exact same idea that we have here in Psalm 37, verse 3. Do good there. Dwell in the land there and befriend faithfulness there. To trust in the Lord is to take the objective content of our faith in the one true living God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus, and we make, a, make visible consent to his reign and rule over our life in the midst of a culture that has rejected that. And So you can be a good, faithful citizen right in the midst of, a, right in the midst of Babylon. You can. You can be a faithful citizen who upholds the truth about who God is Because we've got to remember, ever since the garden, everything's been Babylon. And Christians have always been the pilgrims living in a home that's not theirs. This is what it's all about. We trust by faith. We trust the Lord with the objective content of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we make visible consent to the world that this is who our God is, and this is who we are living for, even though we will befriend faithfulness, even though we will dwell in the land, and we will seek to do good here. So you see how this doesn't necessarily require us to go to either one of those extremes of go to war culture or go retreat from culture. It actually allows us to stand right here. Truth tellers, but dwelling in the land. And it's, it's something I think is lost today. And if anyone knows this, it's David, right? I mean, he, had, he lived under the king's court and he was rejected by the king's court there in Saul And he was rejected by his own son who, who formed a coup against him. But he trusted the Lord. 2 verse 4 they delight in the Lord. the meek delight in the lord delight yourself it says in verse 4 in the lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts see most people resist submitting to the lord because they view that kind of life as robbing them of their own joy and their own happiness They see God as, okay, He's holy and He's sovereign, but He's really a killjoy. He really doesn't want me to be happy. Um, And so therefore, He's he's always mad at His children about something. So why do I want to serve this God? But those of us who've walked with Christ for any extended period of time know how foolish that sounds, don't we? That the light forms in us when we see Jesus as an exquisite delight in our lives. And that only happens over time. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you see that, his, that he is perfect in grace, that he is perfect in compassion, he is perfect in mercy, he is perfect in kindness, he is perfect in patience, he is perfect in love. And the more we know him, the more we delight in him. Amen. So we delight. So delight is a growing reality in us as we learn more and more, about, learn more, and more to rely on Jesus. Now, when he says, give you the desires of your heart, now, I just want I to, think, I, I think I can make this clear, right? This is not prosperity gospel. This isn't like, see, God, if I'm faithful to you and whatever else, you're going to give me my new bins. Like, okay, that's, that's not what we're talking about, okay? But it's our delights more conformed to the delights of God. And they then begin to show forth. I mean, because even he says later on, he says, you know, in, in the text we'll read here in just a few minutes... Um, is uh, uh, the wicked plots against it, but the Lord laughs. I'm sorry, verse 14. Um, no, I'm sorry, verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the many, many wicked. So clearly the psal- psalmist is not calling us to basically have a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's saying our delights will, begin, uh, will will happen because our delights, as we delight in the Lord, will begin to be changed for the things of the Lord. So just... I want to make sure he said that clearly so the meek trust in the lord the meek delight in the lord Psalmist says let's keep going because there's way more it's more the, the the meek commit their way to the lord verse 5. commit your way to the lord trust in him and he will act he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day this idea of commitment here is not just a visible ascent to the lord right it's not just us standing and going ah oh, i am for the lord That's not what he's saying there. This is actually what uh, a Lutheran um, uh, scholar says. This is to roll one's ways up under the Lord. In other words, you are going to stand under the refuge of God, under his banner, under his wings, under his protection. It's the same thing that Peter gets at in 1 Peter 5 says, and cast all of your anxiety upon him because what? He cares for you. You commit your way to him, not because... You're trying to prove something to the world, but you're, you, you, you commit to him because you know he's going to show up. He's going to show up. He's going to make all things new in his own good time. And we don't need to worry about the things of the world. God cares for us and he will manage everything that, that can possibly come into our lives. Some of us carry, and friends, I'm, I'm, I will admit that this is something that I have to routinely have to check myself on. We carry our anxiety around like a warm blanket. And that warm blanket actually leaves us feeling naked and afraid. Our anxiety can never be that warm blanket. Only the assurance of Christ is there. So we we trust in the Lord. We delight in Him. We commit our way to Him. Number four, we are still before Him. The meek... Or still, verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, for not yourself over the ones who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Blaise Pascal said it this way, The basic thing that we get wrong, with the, the, that, that, that is wrong with the world, is that man does not know how to stay quietly in his own room. That's good. Some of us just don't know how to be still before the Lord. Because it makes us feel uncomfortable we gotta have we, we gotta be seeing things we gotta be we gotta start things have to be happening right and that's what Blaise pascal is getting out here it's not a call it's not called a call to passivity that's not what we're talking about here but it's a staying still before the lord waiting patiently before the lord That as we're going about doing good and as we're all going about dwelling in the land and befriending faithfulness and yet the world continues to disintegrate right around us, we wait patiently on him. We stay still before him. The end of the story has not arrived. It has been written. Our sovereign God knows the end of the story but we don't exactly how other than what God has said is going to happen when Jesus returns. Well, here's what we do though is until then the godly will be lifted up and then the last thing that's 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 a marker the fifth thing is to is they know how to avoid bitterness and anger look what it says there in verse eight refrain from anger and forsake wrath fret not yourself it tends only to evil this is where it goes up the second time it's used in fretting yourself for yourself For the evil doer shall be cut off and but those who wait the lord shall inherit the land what is the kind of anger that the, that david is calling us away from anger in god anger him why is he allowing things to happen the way they're happening not just general anger but notice the connection here he he, he refrains from anger and forsaking wrath why he he frets not himself because it attends only to evil He's calling us out. He's calling our anger at God out. But the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait on the, but the ones who wait on the Lord shall be inherit the land. He's saying when you're angry, you're just not trusting in God, and you're actually angry at God more than you're angry at your circumstances. Why would God even allow such a things to happen in my life? So the first thing that we need to remember, first perspective we need to remember is, we have an inheritance. The meek shall inherit the land, and if the meek inherit the land, in verse 11, the meek then know how to live in light of that, from verses 3 through 10. Right? That's what we're trying to get at here. That's what the, that's what David's trying to help us see. But there's a second we're going to, uh, perspective that we want to adopt as well. That the wicked are living on borrowed time. We always got to keep that in our mindset. Like, the wicked are living on borrowed time. They're li- they're, listen, the wicked in the world, as they know it, they, they seem to be ruling as we see it. But here's the thing about it, though. Is, is that not only are they living on borrowed time, they're actually living on borrowed capital. Because this is God's world. He's the one who created it. And if you think he created it for no purpose, then they're, they're, they're wrong. Like there's a day in which God will require recompense for the way in which man has lived in light of who God says he is and what he's revealed about himself and the purposes of his world. He, 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 he helps us here in these next few verses, verses 12 through 20, to, to look at four realities that you and I need to, need to remember about the wicked. And they're not good. And in, in, interspersed with all this is then promises to us. As he's dealing with the wicked, he comes and tells us some things. The first one is, the wicked plot against the righteous, but the Lord laughs. I mean, that's what we see here in verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The, the, we have already noted this. We've already touched on this back in the first week in Psalm 2. But let's just kind of pick out it a little bit more, right? The Lord finds the plots of the wicked humorous. He finds their toil to live lives without God and His holy standard to be laughable. And this laugh is not a, like a, like a, a laugh of, of pleasure. It's a laugh of scorn because He knows what their end is going to be. And so here's the thing that i would like for us to think about if the lord can laugh at the wicked's plots should we not at least be able to refrain from ag- being agitated by the way life the world is as it is why so much frustration why so much anger why so much mutual why so much so many efforts to try to think somehow or another to to, to 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 create heaven on earth here the lord's going to return if God can laugh at the wicked, wicked's plots, can we not at least refrain from being agitated at their efforts? I'm fearful that many Christians accommodate their agitation with culture into their, marriage, their message to the culture. So as they're, as they're going about preaching the gospel, they, 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 take, they, they accommodate their agitation, their anger, and their frustration. And somehow or another, the gospel is lost in that sauce. The goodness of Jesus Christ gets lost in that sauce. And so I would ask us, and for me, and I'm saying this myself, no matter what liberties we may have about how we go about in the world, and there are many for the Christian faith, and there are many for us, we can, the Lord uh, allows us as individuals to go and engage in so many different ways, but we should do this. We should take care that our engagement with the world reflects not only the message of God, but our joyful trust in that message. It is no good to just preach the gospel wherever we go but if people don't see that you and I literally are really delighting in it and then it's something good for them to behold and that we're not just responding to with angry rants at how the world's going news flash it's been going really bad for a long time just because it's on Fox News doesn't mean it's new or CNN or wherever you want whatever you get your local um, news blast from If our message at the end of the day only stirs up angst in us or perhaps derision or frustration towards the world, then it might be that the method that we're employing is more important, is is more about comforting our own anxiety about life than the message itself comforts us. If our hope is in some maybe renewed that happens, although I think it's wonderful that Christians should embrace or even even work towards. Again, verse three: befriend faithfulness, dwell in the land, do good. But if that that's not our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is in Jesus and what He has done, how what He has accomplished on the cross for us, and in the new heavens and new earth that He is creating with His people. That we, you, and I will inhabit by as we rest in Him until He returns. So the wicked plot against righteous, but the Lord laughs. And because he laughs, you and I don't have to always be fearful and fret. Second thing he talks about here is the wicked draw their weapons for attack, but they will die by their own sword. They draw their sword, they bend their bows, they bring down the poor and needy, they slay those whose way is upright. Verse 15, their sword though will enter their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has. Little than the abundance of many wicked. If our, if our hope is to counter power of the wicked with our own worldly power, we, but we're getting it backwards. It's better that the little we have. It appears at this moment in this world that we're losing. But we're not. And we don't need the same methods to change the things that the world's used to create the world that that they are now shaping and fashioning since the garden. Sin against God's ways, though, clearly, the psalmist says, carries with it seeds of destruction. And particularly self destruction. The wicked may appear to be succeeding for a season, but the corrupt foundation on which they are building will implode upon itself in time. So, in, the, in other words, they will eventually in, impale themselves with their own swords. That's just what happens. And all the while, you and I are living faithfully and we're proclaiming Jesus and we're, and we're making much of Him and we're training up our children in, in, in the ways of the Lord. And all the while, that becomes a bright, bright display on the backdrop of something that's really horrendous. Eventually, our character will show through. Corrupt foundations will not. They will eventually erode trust. That's why I don't particularly like a lot of the new things going on about pursuing some new christendom i don't i just don't find much help in that message the message that message like the former christendom that we now are seen in the past gets obscured oftentimes and the means and the methods of christendom end up being hollow and they fall apart and eventually you don't see jesus I just, if we've already been through it for several hundred years and we weren't able to sustain it then, why would we think a new one would sustain us? I just don't get it. Sorry if you disagree with me on that. The wicked draw their weapons for the attack, but they will eventually. And this is just God. This is David telling people, like, I've been there. I've seen all the things you can think of. I have seen it. I've seen, it. I've seen, a, I've seen, a, I've seen a rabid king who was mad in his mind, and he was intent on killing me, but the Lord preserved me through all of it. I saw my son make a play for my, my kingdom at the end of my days, and I had to go on a run again, but I saw my God faithfully all the way through it. That's where I want to put my hope and trust in. Third thing, though, the wealth and the power of the wicked is temporary... But God will sustain the righteous. Better is the little the righteous has than the abundance of the many wicked. We just read, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are put to shame in evil times in the days of famine. And they will, and they, and, and sorry, in the days of famine, they will have, I'm sorry, they will not be put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they will have abundance. The fulfillment of God's promises, friends, takes time. And and, and you and I don't know how long the Lord will tarry. We don't. We don't know what God's purpose is in everything that's happening to us in our own nature, much less the rest of the world. We, 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 We still focus beyond that to Christ, who will return one day, and he will be the perfect judge over all things. And we get impatient. Why? Because we don't like things that take a lot of time. We want things to happen now and this is, again, what David's speaking into our own heart. We want it now. We always want this now thing. Well, how is it any different than the world? Who wants what they want now? So the Christian doesn't take that perspective. We trust God over a lifetime. Not over the momentary affliction. The wicked do fall. But the righteous are sustained. Again, i mentioned verse 25 here again we'll unpack this more here in a couple weeks i was young and i'm now an old david says yet i have never seen the righteous forsaken it took a lifetime for me to see that in other words last about the wicked the righteous will survive the day of deprivation but the wicked will perish that's what we see there in verses well, 19 and 20 but, the, my verse 20. but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They will vanish like the smoke. They will vanish away. We'll survive that day. We'll survive that season. The powerful and the beautiful people of this world, Hollywood and all those who think that they run it. I mean, if you've not watched Hunger Games, it's so amazing if you go back and let's see how apropos that is. All the beautiful, pretty people inside the city who've given their lives to making themselves perfect are now getting abused by the system by itself, and it's all said and done. The beauty will fade. Their value will fade. They feel like they're flourishing in the moment, but they're not. Death comes for us all. And they will be like a vapor, but you and I will be renewed day after day for eternity to Jesus. Amazing, right? And those who do the will of God will endure, not just for this life, but for eternity. So let's just finish it up and prepare for the Lord's table. Don't fret, friends. And I say that to myself because I'm there. I I am. But I remind myself, I cling to some of these basic truths we just had. We will endure because we are his for eternity. Friends, is that not the meaning of the table? That Christ and his broken body and his spilt blood provides for us an eternal meal with the Lord of heaven and earth forever and ever and ever? Do do, do we need to remind it that this is where we go? This This is where we live and this is where we rest. This is an invitation to an eternal feast with the Lord and we get to partake in it now as we wait upon him. Oh, Jesus, help us see that. Help us see that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the psalmist. Thank you for the gift of David who, 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 who took time in his old age to help the people who, would, who were coming up and to see that, that, that you're going to get the victory. You, are, you have already gotten the victory. The victory is yours. You've already done so. You've, already, you've staked your claim in Christ, but Jesus, one day there's come, you're coming back and, and you're going to bring everything to its final conclusion. So, Father, as we live and rest, lived in these times and we are prone to fear and anxiety, may the, the simple rest of resting in Christ and, 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 and fellowshipping and communing with the local church, and, and particularly around the sacraments of the Lord's Table and Baptism, God, may the constantly remind us and renew us of who we really are and where our hope stands. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.